0: Let's approach God in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, still here at the door of this new year, we give you thanks for the old year that you have brought us through, and we seek the blessing of your presence to guide us through what is ahead of us. We, in our limited vision, don't see what lies around the corner, much less do we know what our future holds but we know you hold the future and that you hold us in your hand and so guide us now in this service of worship thank you for the gift that is our fellowship our church family for brothers and sisters who share burdens and who encourage us on this way And thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask you now to help us to lay aside anything that would distract us from listening for your voice. And we pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us as his followers. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever Now this Sunday we're going back to the book of Exodus. We're starting a new series on Exodus. And if you missed our first series on Exodus last January, February, and March on that first part of the book of Exodus, then you can go back and have a look at the videos on YouTube or listen to them on our podcast We've got a playlist of of just the readings and the message of each of those eight Sundays. So it will take you between 20 and 30 minutes to have a listen to each of them. But just to refresh our understanding, Exodus chapters 1 to 12 that we covered in that first series fall into a, a definite first section of that book. Chronologically, those chapters, um, chapters 1 to 12, deal with the story of God saving his people from Egypt, where they had been slaves under an oppressive regime for 400 years. And what ensues when God comes down to save his people is what some theologians have called a battle of the gods, the sovereign God on the one hand versus the gods of Egypt, and Pharaoh on the other. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, indeed, considered himself to be God, and that is what the book is very much about. And although this battle between the God rages, it takes ten horrific plagues before uh, Pharaoh finally releases God's people to be free. Now there are various themes that run throughout the book of Exodus and one major one that we covered in part 7 of our series last year was the theme of hard hearts and indeed that comes up again in the passage this morning where we'll be looking at chapter 14 of Exodus. Hard hearts is repeated three times in this passage From chapters 1 all the way to chapter 14, you can map the progression of Pharaoh's hard and hardening heart. And at this point in the story, in chapter 14, Pharaoh and his commanders and his troops have repeatedly hardened their hearts to what God was asking of them. And at this point, God gives them over to what they had set their hearts upon, rebelling against God. This is what is meant in our passage by the terms God hardened their heart. It's not that they had no choice in the matter, but through their repeated rebellion against God, they have come to a place where turning back from their misguided ways is virtually impossible. That's an important background to our reading this morning. So we move on to Exodus chapter 14 verses 1 to 14. Let's hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi rot near Migdol and the sea or between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi, Hari, Ha'irot, opposite. Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into this desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is the word of God. Pray together as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord God still our hearts that we might hear you speaking through our circumstances and through your word that lies open before us today. Come by your spirit and guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have the slide up. There we go. As God's people come out of Egypt, there are two obvious ways to travel to the land of Canaan, the land that God has Promised to them. The first and the most easy route is what is known as the way of the sea there on the map. Marching along this most straightforward way would have brought the Israelites to Canaan in just a matter of days. But the way of the sea was also the way that would bring them up against the Philistines who were sure to oppose them militarily. And there in chapter 13, the chapter just before our passage, it says that the the Israelites were prepared for war against the Philistines. They assumed that this was the way that God would take them to Canaan. But God, speaking to Moses, has them go another way. He has them turn to go on a second, less direct route to Canaan. And I think the children of Israel were probably relieved at this directive from God. This route, this second route, is called the way of the wilderness or the desert road. The way of the wilderness would be longer and the terrain would be a little more rugged but it would mean no conflict with the Philistines. So I, say, I think at this point in the story, the beginning of our chapter, the Israelites are feeling pretty good about their situation. They're, they're, they're free from Egypt, having been slaves for 400 years. Pharaoh, it seems, has seen sense and released them. They've been enriched by their Egyptian neighbors. Back in chapter 12, it says that their neighbors were favorably disposed towards the children of Israel. And they gave them silver and gold and clothing as they hurried them on their way out of Egypt. The children of Israel are obviously relieved to not have to fight the Philistines at this point the road ahead is looking relatively easy and it's no wonder therefore that the text says in verse 8 that they were marching out boldly things are going well for the Israelites at this point but then then God throws a surprise at them as God often does God commands them to take, not to take the most direct road, the way of the sea, and he he doesn't ultimately direct them to follow that second, less dangerous road, the way of the wilderness. Here, through Moses, God tells the people to turn aside and go in yet another direction, in a third direction a direction that no one in their right mind would ever choose. There in verse 2, God says to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn or to turn back and camp near pi yah between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, we don't know exactly where these places are that are mentioned here in our passage. But what we do know is that by God's instruction, the children of Israel are to turn or to turn around from the direction that they were heading. And this instruction from God lands them in a place that is on the shore of the sea. That's either the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds when the Egyptians come upon them in that place, Pharaoh having changed his mind once again, the children of Israel are caught between their enemies, the Egyptians, and the sea with no conceivable route of escape. This is where God has brought them. When they realize they have been directed in this way, the Israelites cry out to God and they complain against Moses, not for the first time, not for the last time, mind you. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt Now, if we were in the sandals of the Israelites, I think most of us would complain, too, being in such a situation. What is God up to? What's he up to bringing them out into this desert place? Isn't God's purpose to save his people? Shouldn't God be looking out for them instead of putting them in... In such a place as this where they are surely going to be captured and dragged back to Egypt or injured or even killed by an angry Pharaoh and his army what is God up to in this passage to Moses God makes it clear what he's up to in verse four before they ever get to the seashore God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, the Israelites. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And again later in verses 17 and 18, God makes his purposes clear to Moses yet again. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. I wonder how you feel about God's stated purpose here in what he's doing. His purpose, he says says it three times, is to gain glory for himself. What does that mean? You know, the term "vain, glorious." It's an adjective describing a person who wants to be the center of attention, someone who always wants the glory for themselves. I wonder, is God being vain, glorious in this passage? Is he saying, I, "I'm doing these things. I'm putting the people of Israel in harm's way. I'm destroying the Egyptian army with the sole purpose of gaining glory for myself. Well, it appears that way, doesn't it? And to be honest, when I first read this passage last week, that's what struck me. And I thought, how on earth am I going to preach on this passage? And even one of my study buddies, who's here this morning confessed to me on Tuesday morning that he might not want to come to the Bible study on Tuesday evening because having read the passage, he too was finding it very uninspiring. I said to him something I needed to hear myself, that the more we read a difficult passage, and even more importantly, when we read a difficult passage together, the more chance there is of understanding what God is saying through it. And sure enough, when we met on Tuesday night, there was much wisdom shared as God spoke through the handful of people gathered there for our Bible study on Zoom. Of course, no passage of Scripture should be read on its own. The God we meet here in Exodus, who causes us often to wonder what he is up to, is the same God we believe who also definitively meets us in Jesus. This God here in Exodus is a good God, just as much as he is a good God in the New Testament. This is a God of love. This God will do what is right, not just some of the time, but all of the time. And so what he is doing here must be good. It must be consummate with his love in some way. What he's doing here must be right. But how? How are we to understand this? Well, the term glory and God's desire to Gain glory occurs numerous times in Scripture, not just here in Exodus. And on Christmas Eve, those of you who were here, we looked at John's prologue, the prologue of John's gospel, where John declares that in Jesus we have seen God's glory, the glory of the one and only Son, This glory that God talks about as his purpose here in Exodus, according to John, is seen most clearly in Jesus. And Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, will pray to God for that same glory. There in John 17, God says, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' desire for him and his Father to be glorified through the agony of the cross is certainly not a plea from vain gloriousness. It's something else altogether. But what is this desire for glory on God's part all about? It all goes back, I believe, to the garden where sin and rebellion have destroyed God's good creation. God's glory has departed. And God's desire has always been that things should be put right, perfectly and wholly, that his glory should be restored in his creation. God's desire is that is that state of affairs where humans are in right relationship with Him, He as God and we as creatures made in His image, wholly dependent on Him. God's desire is that glory, that state of affairs where we will be in right relationship with one another and with all the creatures in all of God's good creation that state of affairs is god's glory the glory that god desires is the purpose behind all that he does in all of time in the time of the old testament and in the time of the new right up to our time and that glory in glorious contrast his self-serving vain glory will ultimately come through his own sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. That is the glory and it is that glory which Pharaoh and his army were set against in the passage that we have before us this morning. You see, Pharaoh wanted to be God himself. He didn't want to be in right relationship with God. Pharaoh wanted to call the shots. His relationship with God was all wrong, but so was his relationship with others, with the Israelites and even with his own people. Pharaoh was, as we said in the past, the epitome of the dark powers that control our world. And sadly, that often control our own hearts. Pharaoh and his henchmen were given numerous chances to turn around. But here in our passage, ultimately because of their hard hearts, Pharaoh and his henchmen need to be fully and finally defeated for God to achieve this stage of his plans. But what about the Israelites? What were they thinking as they stood between Pharaoh and the sea? I wonder if with all that God had done for them in Egypt, that they weren't thinking that God's purpose was always and only to benefit them in the most straightforward way. And yet here they were wandering around in the desert on the verge of being destroyed by their enemies. I wonder if they didn't see that God's purposes are often bigger than what they could see from their own limited perspective. They didn't understand that God's purposes are not always about them. They didn't understand that sometimes God's purpose is to work through them for the sake of other people. They didn't understand that sometimes God works despite them and despite their well-devised plans and hopes and dreams. Here in our passage, God says his purpose has to do not with Israel, but with Egypt. His purpose, he says, is that Egypt, not Pharaoh and his armies, but the people back in Egypt, might finally realize that God is God and Pharaoh is not. And in fulfilling this purpose, God's own people will have to walk the long way around In fulfilling this purpose, God's people will have to find themselves in a place that they don't choose to be. In God fulfilling his purpose, sometimes God's people will find themselves in danger. Maybe that's a lesson we need to learn too. Sometimes, as Christians, we imagine that God should always and only be looking out for our best interests in the way that we understand our own best interests. Sometimes we think and we talk as if God were some kind of genie whose only purpose is to fulfill our desires and to make us feel good. And when he doesn't, we are disappointed in him. And then, through the circumstances of life, we find ourselves in a metaphorical desert with a sea on one side and on the other our own personal Pharaoh, whatever that might be. And we think that God has abandoned us. The fact of the matter is, he has not and he never will. God is there and He is working his purposes out, not just for us, but he is working his purpose out for his glory and for the redemption of all things and all people. The final two verses of our passage, Moses gives the Israelites some solid advice that is as good for us as it was for them as we too face our pharaohs on the one hand and the deep blue sea on the other, let's heed Moses' wisdom. Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. As we face difficult situations where we are tempted to wonder about what God is doing and why, let's try and let God be God. Let's know that God is good and he will always be good. That his purpose is good. Even if at times we don't understand it. Let's be still. Be silent. Be attentive. And trust this God who promises to journey with us through the good times as well as these difficult ones. Amen. And may God bless to us this reflection on his word this morning. We sing in response the hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Now during that last hymn, we would normally had an offering in, in normal times. I think some of you don't even know normal times in Bigger Kirk. <laughs> But we, we still, as part of our worship, want to be giving to God and to God's work. And you can still do that. There's an offering plate as you go out the door. I'm going to turn to our prayers now. And this morning we're going to pray for the Crockett family. Um, Pete Crockett has visited us on several occasions, as well as his wife Hannah. They now have three children, Beatrice Samson and Claudia, Uh, they have gone as missionaries to a country that I can't mention on YouTube. And so we're going to show a video, short video from um, the Crockett family after the service, after we turn off the recording. So if you could stay behind afterwards, very short video. But we'll we'll pray for them in generalities this morning. So that's Pete and Hannah. What did I say? Beatrice, (laughs) Samson, and Claudia, our mission family. But first, we pray to dedicate our offering. God of love, we bring you today our money, not as a collection, but as an offering, not given out of duty, but gladly. Not brought out of habit, but out of love. Receive what we offer and use it for your purposes. Take what we offer here and pour out your grace upon it. That by it you might bless your world. And that we may be part of your kingdom. And it's coming in all its fullness. And Lord, this morning we approach you heeding the words of your servant Moses. We want to still our hearts. We want to make them silent before you. We want to still our hearts knowing that you will fight for us. Jesus, in your incarnation, your passion, and your resurrection, you have fought for us, you have done all things for us, you have saved, Lord God, and you will save, and we, we need neither fight nor strive to save ourselves. Lord, help us to live into this reality on a daily basis. Help us to come back often to the bedrock of that unbelievable truth of your amazing grace. And as your people saved by that grace, we pray your grace out into the world. pray for our community still crippled by this virus and its unknown future effects and we remember other communities around the world that suffer far worse than we do we ask for your liberation where people live under oppressive regimes we ask for your justice where that justice has been denied We ask for an equal sharing of the wealth that you have so graciously poured out on all the earth. And we pray for our missionary family, the Crockett's. We pray for them in this time as they get to know a new language, a new culture, and a new community. Lord, bless them that they might be a blessing in the place where you have called them. Pray that they would be bound together by your love as a family. As they face both good times and difficult times. And today, inspired by your word, We lift up to you people known to us in situations where they feel trapped. Trapped by a Pharaoh on one side and a deep blue sea on another. People trapped by circumstances. In illness and hardship of one kind or another. In pits of their own making or... Of the making of other people. And Lord, we cry out to you to open a way for them, part for them what has been an impenetrable sea that they might walk through on dry land. And coming out the other side that they might sing your praises. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, help us as we move forward into whatever it is that you have in store for us. Help us to be confident in your love. And in your ability to bring about your loving purposes. As we follow you, Lord, make us people who are infectious when it comes to trusting in you. That this world might be full of your glory as the waters cover the sea.